This, this, this is you. KUT. KUT, Austin. Stop. This is KUT. I'm Jennifer Staten. Two people were killed, four were injured when Austin was hit with a series of bombings in March of 2018. The bomber blew himself up as police closed in on him early on the morning of March 21st. There are still lots of questions about the bomber's motives and still lots of questions about other aspects of the case, including how the media covered it. But the answers to those questions depend on which media you're talking about. Craig Watkins teaches in the radio, television, film department at the University of Texas at Austin. When we talked about media coverage of the bombings, he pointed out the two distinctly different types of coverage that he says mirrored the shifting media landscape in general. I think in some ways the coverage, um, it really sort of speaks to the shifting kind of media landscape that we all live in today. And so, for example, there was the traditional media narrative and coverage, local TV, you know, print and radio. But then there was also, you know, a lot of conversation and coverage happening via social media. And obviously, right, those are two very different uh, perspectives and two very different accounts of the serial bombings. Um, and specifically, for example, with the traditional coverage, right, um, I think there was more of a tendency to turn to what we might call institutional elites to kind of help shape the crafting of that story. So are those like spokespeople, yeah, exactly. public officials, okay. exactly. You know, uh, you know, referring to the Darrington police chief here of Austin, for example, FBI agents, and obviously local and and statewide elected officials. So they obviously filter right the story through a very different lens and through a very different perspective. But if you contrast that to social media, right, there was a very different set of expertise, a very different perspective that was being filtered that was more kind of community driven and and community based. And so the conversations that happened via social media versus traditional media were very different. The reporting by both was very different. And it just speaks to this, again, changing media landscape that we're in. The, as you say, traditional media tend to go to the elite sort of traditional sources. Well, social media had a broader perspective. Isn't part of this landscape, though, that sometimes to get the official information, you have to go to the official sources just to kind of get the the facts of the case? Absolutely. It makes a lot of sense, right, that you would want to hear from the interim police chief about, you know, how is the local police responding as more and more agents were coming in from other parts of the country to help with the investigation and and pursuit of the serial bomber. I mean, you clearly want to hear from uh, officials like that because they provide, you know, a sense of public safety. They update us on how what the official response is. But it's still right through a very filtered and and particular perspective. Whereas with social media, right, there were certainly concerns about public safety. There were certainly concerns about finding, right, the serial bomber. But there was another interesting narrative that emerged via social media that really wasn't as resonant in traditional media. And that was concerns about whether or not these bombings were racially motivated. And and so what you you see in social media, right, particularly because it's coming from, again, a very different perspective, is the expertise that's also important and significant in terms of helping us to understand, you know, the community's response to this and what's happening was a concern about whether or not these were sort of racially targeted bombings, particularly the first two or three, right, which was, uh, I think the bombs were placed in the doorsteps of an African-American household, a Latino household. And so there was this recognition, right, that, that perhaps there was something going on here that the mainstream or more conventional narrative wasn't recognizing. So when you're talking about reporting on social media, or reporting being done by people on social media, who are you talking about? Because as we know, 
Anybody can set up a Twitter account. Anybody can set up a Facebook account. Anybody can set up a web page. So what do you regard as those sources on social media? How do we know which sources we can rely on and which are not necessarily fact-based? Yeah. And in fact, you know, that's becoming more and more of an urgent question in the era of fake news and the deliberate attempts to misdirect and sometimes even misinform the public. Um, And so it's a really interesting question, I think a really important question. Uh, And it's important to say, right, that that there wasn't one social media conversation that was happening about the serial bombings. There were several. Um, And the one that I'm uh, particularly focusing on here, I think, is the one that emerged from community activists, uh, people living in East Austin, or people who are, are concerned about some of the broader issues around racial and economic disparity in Austin. And so t- to me, that was a really interesting conversation that began to expand you know, our concerns about what was happening via the serial bombings. And so what emerges from that narrative, right, is not only a concern about the bombings, but I think more broadly a concern about racial and economic disparity in the city, um, and the fact that even as Austin continues to grow and evolve into this really dynamic innovation hub, that Austin isn't working for every And for many, the serial bombing and the sort of official response to it was just yet another indication of how some are being left behind or being marginalized in the city's progression forward. Those conversations that are happening on social media with activists and other sources that the traditional media may not cover, do those official sort of elite traditional sources tend to follow the activist sources on social media? Yeah, no, I think sociologically, I think it's a really fascinating question. I think what makes this really interesting and what makes this so timely, initially, I think the conversations begin kind of in silos, sort of running parallel to each other, but not necessarily engaged with each other. But I think because of the speed at which social media, you know, operates, and because of the way in which social media has now emerged as a prominent voice, a prominent vehicle for articulating all kinds of perspectives and viewpoints, that I think now officials are plugged into the power of social media and they understand that not to respond right to this conversation that's happening in parallel to the official narrative is problematic and in some ways to their own detriment. And so in many ways, we're beginning to see um, you know news organizations, elected officials, uh, other kinds of institutional elites, they are very much aware of, uh, cognizant of what's happening via social media and are now recognizing the need to respond to and sort of engage those conversations and those issues. And I think we saw it, you know, with the serial bombing, we saw it with the way in which the interim chief began to sort of modify his own interpretation of what was happening. So his recognition that this was, in fact, uh, a case of what he would call domestic terrorism. In some ways, right, I think his, his sort of that expression on his part was in many ways, I think, sort of influenced or impacted by the social media conversation, where very early on, right, within a day or two of the events happening, people were using that language via social media. I'm wondering if that speed of social media is ever bad. Like, was there ever a time in this case where that that actually worked against the evolving conversations and against the investigation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, the, the really good thing about social media, right, is that it can be real time and that it's very rapid spread of information. And of course, the bad thing about social media, right, is that it can be real time and the rapid spread of information. And what we're beginning to recognize, right, is that the spread of information, particularly the rapid spread of information, can oftentimes, um, you know, circulate misinformation, you know, half truths or facts that really aren't, that turn out not to be factual. And so I think that's something that we as a society and, you know, news organizations, uh, the public consumption of news and information, 
you know, we're at a moment now where we're asking a lot of critical questions about social media, right? Facebook is in the news for what a lot of people feel are the failings of that company to sort of manage, right, its, its, its big platform in a way that protects, right, the public good and the integrity of the information that we all have access to. And so absolutely, right, the, the rapid way in which social media now sort of spreads information, spreads opinions and spread viewpoints. I mean, there are issues that we certainly have to be concerned about. And how do we begin to create, right, a society, a culture and norms that allow us to sort of reconcile some of those negative aspects in a way that doesn't sort of jeopardize the quality of the discourse. So how do we do that? How do we do that? Being balanced in terms of, of how we access news and information. So I just worked with with the Research Center from the University of Chicago last September, October, and we did a national survey of 18 and 30-year-olds about a number of things related to social media, including news and information. And not surprisingly, right, uh, most of them indicate that the way in which they get their news now is via social media. And so they're not consuming it through television. Uh, they're absolutely not reading it via print. And it's primarily through social media. And it raises some really interesting questions, right, because the quality of the news and information that, that we receive via social media is sometimes suspect, right, or sometimes questionable. And one of the ways in which we might combat that, right, is, is trying to be more diverse in terms of the sources of news that we access, in terms of, you know, how often we plug into social media. I think these are these are some of the things, right, that some people are saying is, right, how do we begin to manage our social media diet, the amount of time that we spend with social media, how do we develop skills to vet? the information that circulates via social media. These are things that I think are becoming more and more important to the culture more broadly. It seems like all of this puts way more responsibility on the consumer. You know, it used to be decades ago, even not that long ago, you'd sit down and listen to the radio, watch the news, read the newspaper. And that was just that was what you got. You assumed that it was journalistically sound. You consumed it and then kind of moved on. But social media sources, as you say, there's a wide variety you know, you, you kind of have to check out the sources yourself. It seems like it requires a lot more on the consumer's part. Yeah, it, it absolutely does. And it, it it has sparked a conversation among many researchers and ed- educators about the need to sort of rethink and expand how we think about digital literacy, for example. And one key aspect of digital literacy is exactly related to this, right? How do we develop the skills, the kind of competencies that allow us to better vet, to better filter, uh, and to better understand, uh, you know, the information that we're receiving or that's circulating via social media? Uh, And that's not something that you're just sort of born sort of naturally and, and instinctively are able to do. It's really, right, a set of skills that we have to sort of, I think, assertively or actively cultivate. And, you know, that's, you know, increasingly, I, I would argue, right, our schools should begin begin to sort of think more carefully about this aspect of digital literacy. How do we teach young people to be aware of and to sort of navigate fake news and misinformation in the sort of explosion of social media? It sort of turns over the conversation, the sort of creation of narratives, right, to a much more diverse set of storytellers and people, but it also requires us, right, to be even more, um, I think, assertive uh, and diligent in terms of how we think about the information that we're receiving. So you cited some some new research from the fall that you were involved in about news consumption and social media usage, and that 18 to 30-year-olds are more and more increasingly getting their news from social media sources. Is there data overall that exists about who tends to use social media? Is it really broad? Is it all ages, all ethnic demographic groups? Or is it is it a self-selecting group that is going to social media for sources and news? It, it predominantly is sort of younger uh, news consumers, right, who are much more likely 
to consume news primarily via social media. Although the trend line suggests that more and more people, including older citizens, are also accessing news or accessing news via social media as well. But it tends to be, um, you know, people who are who are younger, uh, who tend to spend uh, much more time, for example, with their smartphones. And so just the way in which they engage, you know, every aspect of their lives is being sort of facilitated more and more via their connections to smartphones, via their connections to social media. And so it cuts across age to some degree. Our data seems to suggest, right, that African-Americans um, and Latinos, um, at least young African-Americans and Latinos, are much more likely to consume and post uh, content related to social and political issues via social media than their white counterparts. But generally speaking, right, I think it's it's the trend lines are such that younger and younger people are seeing social media as the primary connection to news and information. So we got a couple of questions from listeners in connection with, with the recent forum that we did, and I wanted to pose those to you. I'm interested to hear kind of your thoughts thoughts on a couple of these questions. We got a question from a listener who wanted to know, why are black and brown folks committing these crimes, referring to the bombing, terrorists, and whites are challenged? Now, I think that listener is referring to the way that Interim Police Chief Brian Manley had characterized the serial bomber as a, as a challenged young man and is contending that if the bombs bombings have been committed by a person of color might have been quicker to apply that label or would not have had the same what some saw as a softer approach to that yeah. i'm I'm curious to kind of get your thoughts on sort of the intersection of that assessment with the media does the media tend to follow those narratives also you know i think so um i mean i think again right um if we sort of you know, think about traditional media and how it's likely to construct a story or, or, or to, to construct a narrative versus how social media uh, is likely to do so. And then who's shaping and sort of driving the construction of that narrative. Um, to the extent that at least some of the social media, right, was from local activists, people in the community. So it was sort of bottom up as opposed to top down. Again, right, the way in which they're interpreting these same events, but interpreting them very differently. Um, I mean, I, I think I think a lot of African-Americans and Latinos are under the impression that if this had been an African-American, a Latino, and certainly if it had been a Muslim American, that the language that we would sort of use to sort of describe this person would have likely been very different. Uh, And so, again, it sort of speaks to um, the sort of racial differences and distinctions in terms of how we look at and see the same things, but via experience, uh, sort of articulate and understand and interpret them in very different ways. Are there lessons that traditional media, social media, and consumers can learn from the serial bombing case going forward in either how cases like this are covered or how news consumers regard coverage of cases like this? Yeah, I would say um, if if I'm someone in the traditional media, you know, I, I, I'm absolutely... Um, not concerned, but I absolutely understand, right, the, the importance of social media, the influence of social media. And so I want to be very, very kind of clued into the social media conversations that are happening, but also to think about how those conversations are happening and the people driving those conversations. How can I develop, right, conversations with them? How can we sort of be in this together, invest in this as a community? And so in that sense, right, I think it requires traditional organizations to sort of expand the people who they turn to to help them sort of understand what's happening. Um, Diversifying the newsrooms, I think in some ways, is one way of perhaps making sure that you are also including different 
different voices and different perspectives as you go about doing the business of reporting, as you go about doing the business of journalism. And so I think looking at social media and saying, hey, that's a perspective, those are voices. How do we begin to sort of create a culture and create an organization that is able to include those voices and perspectives in the reporting that we do? Craig Watkins is a professor at the University of Texas at Austin, the radio, television, film department. He has a new book coming out this fall called The Digital Edge. Craig, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. You can review KUT's coverage of the Austin serial bombings and find more news at KUT.org. I'm Jennifer Staten, KUT News.